Again, welcome to Pastor Don. The Lord bless as you open the word to us tonight. Well, it's been a beautiful Lord's Day, and we're so glad that you're out with us tonight. Would you please take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'm going to read in our hearing, and then we'll go to prayer, verses 12, 13, and 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We thank the Lord for his word. Let's bow our head and hearts again and seek the favor and face of God. Almighty God, as we close out this beautiful day, we thank you that we can do so with our brothers and sisters, that we can gather together and we can delight in the God who has loved us with an everlasting love. We thank you that we can come tonight in the land of safety, that um, you've been so good and kind to us. We remember other parts of the world with... Uh, natural disasters, with wars, with other trials and troubles and tribulations. And we have been unusually blessed, and we thank you for that. We thank you that as we gather tonight, we can do so <clears throat> with the sure and certain hope of a future that is guaranteed in the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension and the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that a man is in heaven tonight who bears our likeness and who bore our sin. We thank you that he micromanages the universe tonight for the good of his people, for the extending of his kingdom, for the building up of his church. We thank you that although your people are many, innumerable, that you know each one of us intimately you do not confuse our names. You do not forget our circumstances. But uh, you know us intimately. And we thank you that as we come in prayer tonight, our brothers and sisters are praying all over the world. And yet it isn't a bunch of noise in your ear. But you're able to hear all the prayers of all your people. And you're answering them according to your good purposes in Jesus Christ. Father, we prayed this morning for uh, Mike and Dana's um, mom who's in the hospital, and we pray for her again. We pray that you will be gracious, give the doctors wisdom as they care for her. We pray again for the seniors who are more vulnerable to COVID-19, and we pray that you would be gracious there as well. We pray, of course, that... Um, that they would love the Savior, that uh, you would be pleased to send your gospel and uh, be pleased to work in people's hearts by your Spirit. Father, we pray for our brother Braden tonight. We thank you so much for him, for the gifts and the abilities you've given him, and we pray for his exams this Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. 
that you will give him a sense of your presence and of your peace and of your pleasure. And we pray, Father, that he will uh, do well according to um, his effort and work and study and your kind providence. May you bless him and make him a blessing to many people, we ask. Father, we pray that you will bless your church around the world tonight. We know that very few nations enjoy the peace and prosperity that we do. We know that we have brothers and sisters in communist countries who are persecuted. We have brothers and sisters in war-torn countries. We have brothers and sisters in Muslim countries who are persecuted for their faith and We pray for the church worldwide and especially for those who are undergoing trials that you would uphold them and keep them faithful that they would not love their lives unto death but oh, they love Jesus supremely and they would gladly surrender all for his glory and for his praise and for his gospel. We pray you bless us tonight. We think of people who cannot be here We pray especially for those with uh, health situations and other circumstances. May they have a sense of your presence. May your spirit take your word and work it in their hearts and minds. May you give them peace and comfort and joy. May you fill them with hope and anticipation for a glorious future. And may you sustain their faith by your word. And may they increasingly trust you, increasingly mistrust themselves and anything else that they would trust in. And we pray, Father, that you will continue to strengthen and build up your church, not only in Canada, but around the world. And we pray that you would be pleased even this day to save sinners. For the glory and the praise of your Son, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Again, Marvin and I want to thank you very much. I think it's on, isn't it? Yes, good. Um, For having us this weekend, we thoroughly enjoyed yesterday, and it's always wonderful to worship with you. We love these great old hymns, and want to thank uh, Riel and Iris for their kind hospitality. And then we had the uh, the privilege of visiting Braden's estate, and... um, That's quite a bachelor's pad, so we're very thankful to the Lord for his goodness to a very, very dear friend and their family. Would you take your Bible again and turn to the book of 1 Peter? Again, if you're not quite sure, that's just before 2 Peter, and aren't you glad there's some of those books in the Bible? 1 and 2 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and 1 and 2 Peter, and if you really get stuck, there's a first and second and third John. So I'm going to read these verses again before we dive in. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12, 13, and 14. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial, beloved, when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let's pray again before we come to the word. 
Father, we come to the God of this Word and we thank You for the great privilege to pray. We thank You that we do not need to bring sacrifices. We do not need to come before a priest. But we thank You that we can come humbly but boldly into the presence of the holy and living God because of the sacrifice we bring, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has opened up a new and living way for us. We thank you that the curtain has been torn and we have access into the very holy of holies, all because of Jesus. And we come tonight and we ask you to bless us. We know that you love to bless your children. We know that when we ask for bread, you do not give us stones. When we ask For fish, you do not give us scorpions. And so we ask for your spirit afresh that he would open up the word of God to us and us to the word of God. And we pray, Father, that you will take things from the treasury of your word and use them and put them deep in our hearts and our minds and our lives so that they will not only bless us tonight, but in the days and the weeks and the months to come. Teach us and change us, we ask for Jesus' sake. Our prayer is that we will increasingly be less and less like ourselves, and increasingly be more and more like Jesus, for it's in his name we worship. Amen. <clears throat> we find ourselves tonight in the book of First Peter, and First Peter is a very interesting book because It is kind of a survival guide. It's kind of a manual for believers who are going through very difficult and trying and troubling times. Now, I realize that this book is irrelevant to most of us in this room because the Christian life is so easy and it's problem-free and you can't remember the last time you've really had a tough situation to work through. And of course, I'm being a little bit sarcastic because much of our life is a life of trial, isn't it? And some of us have trials and situations that will not terminate this side of glory. It may be health, it may be family, it may be other things, but trials are a vital part of our life, a a very um, key component of our life. First of all, because we live in a fallen world, And what else would we expect in a world that is under the curse of God because of sin? It's under the reign in the smaller sense of Satan who loves to do great damage to the people of God. But we're also living in a world that is our father's world. And because he is a good father, he brings into our lives those things that will not make us happy, but will make us holy. Because his purpose for us is that we will be holy. As First Peter will say, <clears throat> we are to be holy for he is holy. And our example is the Lord Jesus Christ, who unfairly and unjustly suffered for sinners like you and I. So we're not to be surprised that God would write a book. And of course, there are many books in the Bible about the believer's struggles and trials and sufferings. They will always be a part of us until we cross the river and go into a place of unspeakable glory and bliss and happiness 
And that day is coming for all of us who know Jesus Christ. But until then, we want to note and notice and be informed on how we might triumph in our trials. Now, I didn't say triumph over our trials, but triumph in our trials. We have a tendency to think if God would just remove the problem, I would really grow like crazy. But the Bible knows that that isn't true. The Bible knows that I grow best when there are trials. Chuck Swindoll wrote a book many years ago with this fascinating title, Grace Grows Best in Winter. Do you know anything else that grows best in winter? But grace grows best in winter. So what we want to do is take a few minutes tonight before we close out this Lord's Day just to look at how we might triumph in our trials. And as we look at these verses, we want to see three things. First of all, some characteristics of our trials, because it's very, very important to understand the nature and characteristics of the kinds of trials God puts us through. Secondly, we want to look at the command God gives us in our trials. And then thirdly, the comfort which is ours in our trials. So some characteristics, a command, and a great comfort. First of all, then, some characteristics that we need to note when we are going through trials. And if you're not going through a trial tonight, you will be. Not necessarily tonight, but you will be. Uh, nobody lives a trial-free life who belongs to Jesus. And we need to understand some very important things about trials, their character, their nature. And I'm going to highlight from this passage three of those things tonight. The first we need to notice in verse 12 <clears throat> is that trials are an expression of God's love. Trials are an expression of God's love. You see how verse 12 begins? Beloved, loved ones, dearly loved ones. This word in the Greek is that biblical word agape, agape toy. That is the loved ones. And we must never think that when we're in a trial, that God is mad at us, that God is hating us, that God is getting us, and God is giving us what we deserve. No, there's only one person that God gave what we deserve to, and that is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how difficult my trial is, it's not even close to what I deserve. And what I deserved was the wrath and the judgment of God himself. And he sent his beloved son so that he might endure and exhaust and extinguish the wrath of God that Don Theobald should get. Not only tonight or tomorrow, but for all eternity. And his body and his soul, the Lord Jesus Christ, dealt with the wrath of God so that God is able to say in every situation, Don, I love you. I love you in Jesus Christ. I love you as much as I love Jesus Christ. And so we must always remember that God is not mad at us. God is not out to get us. 
that God, in giving us trials, is expressing his love and his care and his concern. When uh, I was pastoring full-time, my wife had four adorable children to look after in the pew by herself. Our oldest son, who the Lord surprised us with, not in his birth, but after university, that he actually went into the ministry. We never dreamt that. But our oldest son sometimes would act up in church. And um, when he got home, uh, his loving father would discipline him. And he would say, but dad, Phil was goofing around in church today. And Joe was goofing around in church today. But you don't do anything to them. And I would say to him, but David, they're not my sons. You're my son. I love you. And because I love you, this must occur. And so as we think of our lives, and again, some of our trials, I have a trial that I assume will be with me until they put me in the box or until the Lord returns. But it's an expression of the love of God. And I must never forget that. God is not out to get me. If you've been a parent, and sometimes you've had to maybe discipline your children, and, and you might even hear them say, why do you hate me so much? You're a terrible mother. You're a terrible father. And of course, we know that's not true. We, we're doing this because we love them. The terrible fathers are the people who couldn't care less what's happening to their children. And when you look around at the world today and you see it's a camp run amok in many ways, you realize they do not have a heavenly father who cares about them. But oh, the children of God do. And so I must remember that every trial, every difficulty, every problem, every situation is an expression of the love of God. Whom the Lord hates, he disciplines? No. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so I must always, always be thankful when a trial comes that it's an indicator that my Heavenly Father really cares about me, is really concerned about me, and deeply, deeply, deeply loves me. Characteristic number one. Characteristic number two of trials is that they're to be expected. Beloved, don't be surprised at the trial when it comes upon you to test you. Have you ever thought or said, I just can't believe this is happening to me? You're shocked because you're going through a difficult situation. Or you might even say it about another Christian. I just can't believe what they're going through. And the Bible says that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. That I'm to expect trials, difficulties. I've had a fair bit of schooling, not because I'm smart. If I was smart, I wouldn't have to go to school. But I've had a fair bit of schooling so that I get smart. And, and the interesting thing about school is when you go in September, one of the first things they do is they give you a syllabus for the semester, don't they? 
And you see assignments. You see the outline of the course. You see the books you have to read. And then you notice midterm test, final exam. I'm not to be shocked when I go to school that they actually are going to give me an exam. They're really going to test me on this? And you see, for the believer, I am to expect to be tested. And the thing that really tests me is trials. Now, you might say, well, what's the subject? It's always the same. The subject is faith. My faith must be tested to prove that it is true, a true saving faith, and to improve that true saving faith. You know, I know you look up here at this hunk of a guy, but you don't get a body like this without working out. And I was pushing away from the table at lunch today, just some pushaways. Do you ever do those? And... Um, the truth is, if you're going to be strong, you, you have to work at it. You have to be tested. You're, you're not there in the weight room lifting up marshmallows. They start with 20 pounds, and then 40 pounds, and then 50. And then I heard of some of these football guys that can bench press 500 pounds. I think, I don't even know what that is in kilograms. I, I was born with pounds and inches and all that stuff. But anyways, God wants to test me. Is my faith true saving faith? Because not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, is saved. And it is very important that my faith be tested to see if it's the real thing. So I should expect trials and exams and tests. Now, the interesting thing, because I've had a fair bit of schooling, I'm not bragging, I'm just saying how dumb I am, but everything I've taken, there have been tests. And I remember thinking when I graduated from grade 8, good, no more school, no more tests. No, Well, I got to grade 9. Then I kind of worked my way up. Back then it was grade 13. And um, all the way through, tests, exams, you know, those spot tests when you walk in, you're goofing around looking at the pretty girls and they say, okay, get out a piece of paper. It's going to be a French quiz. Door, cat, whatever it might be. And, oh, that's not fair. You, I, you didn't say that. I told you at the beginning of the course, didn't I? Be prepared every day for a quickie spot test. And you see, the Lord says, be, query, be prepared every day for a quickie test. And some of them are just as irritating as a fly or a mosquito or another person. But others, they're lifelong tests. And what God is interested in is for me to know that he is determined to examine and test my faith because the only thing that will save you is faith. And you don't get saved by faith 20 years ago, kind of like when you go home tonight, you put the key in the door, open the door, and then put the key away. When you get saved 20 years ago or 30 years ago or two weeks ago, 
you begin a lifelong journey of living by faith. And it's always the topic. It's always the subject. It's always the issue of the test. Will your faith in Jesus Christ alone stand the test? So, trials are an expression of God's love. Secondly, trials are to be expected. Don't be surprised that there's exams in the course of the Christian life. And then thirdly, trials will sometimes be excruciating. Look at this in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. When, not if, but when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, Peter is writing to Christians who live around the city of Rome in the middle 60s A.D. Not the 1960s, but the 60s. And there was a guy on the throne of the Roman Empire at that time whose name was Nero. And they said he was into violin playing and stuff. And Nero burnt down much of the city of Rome from July 19th to July 22nd, 64 AD. When he started getting heat, not from the fire, but from the people of Rome, he blamed it on the Christians. And that was the first of ten major persecutions of the church for the next 250 years. And some of them were literally fires. Believers being burnt at the stake. Nero was a very um, artistic person. He loved gardens. And of course, back then, they didn't have electricity. So at night, as he took people through his gardens... He put tar or pitch on Christians, stuck them on a pole, and lit them so that people would be able to see the gardens at night. And you say, really? Really? Yeah. We live in a strange world. Even in the 20th century, we had the mass killing of Millions and millions of people. And they gathered their skin and their hair and all kinds of things. The depths of depravity, they, they are shocking to say the least. And we're not to be surprised. And we are to be prepared that sometimes trials are going to be absolutely excruciating. And you're going to be convinced, and I'm going to be convinced, that they'll be the death of us. But to be forewarned is to be forearmed, isn't it? We have it pretty good here. But if you read the voice of the martyrs, if you get other literature, you realize that it isn't a pretty world out there. They say that there were more martyrs for Jesus Christ in the 20th century than the 19th centuries altogether leading up to the 20th century. Now, we're only 23 years into the 21st century. I shudder to think of what the record will be by the time this century ends if the Lord doesn't return. And so 
we're to be prepared and we're to understand that as expectant and as excruciating as our trials are, they're all expressions of our Father's love for us. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Terminal cancer, a permanent disability, a difficult marriage, problems in the church, financial always going from paycheck to paycheck, all the kinds of things that believers go through in Arab countries, Muslim countries, buildings being burnt down where believers gathered to worship. And we need books like First Peter that help us to really understand the nature of things. Because you see, a lot of us, we think a trial is we didn't get the rebate. We think a trial is that the fast food lane wasn't fast. We think a trial is, you know, and our trials often are pretty minor compared to what many believers go through in this world and down through the history of the church. Well, that's just some of the characteristics. And of course, if you read through the Bible, you realize that there are all kinds of other information that we could add to these trials. And we're not doing that so people will say, man, this really sucks. Like, who'd want to be a Christian? It gets worse. The command in our trials. Verse 13, we have our word but again, B-U-T. It's a word of contrast, isn't it? Okay. Uh, They're to be expected. They may be excruciating, but... And this is in the second person plural, present imperative. should ask these teachers if they know what all that means. But second person plural means everybody, y'all, the whole congregation. An imperative means this isn't a heavenly hint for happy living. This is a command. This is marching orders from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the present tense means that this command is for today. And if we make it to tomorrow, which will be today, it's a command. And if we make it to... This is an ongoing command that is to be always true of the people of God. Now, what is that command? But rejoice. That's what it says. Beloved, don't be surprised. Beloved, some of this is going to be excruciating, incredibly painful. Painful sometimes bodily, but sometimes just in the very depth of our heart and soul. But, my loving Heavenly Father is commanding me to do what? Rejoice. Now, just so that you won't think Peter's a little weird, you just think of other parts of the New Testament. Jesus' half-brother James says what? Count it all. If once in a while, whenever you face trials of any kind, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord 
when things are going well. No, always. Always. And for guys like Don Theobald, I'll say it again, rejoice. You see, rejoicing in the midst of our trials is a command from our loving Heavenly Father who cares deeply about us. Now, we might think this stuff is weird. But what is this Christianity? Like, are, are we just taking something and acting weird? No, no. Rejoicing is to be the heartbeat of the children of God. As I mentioned yesterday at the picnic, it's supernatural. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Rejoicing isn't something that I crank up. Rejoicing isn't something that happens with a certain personality type. You know, there are just some people, the sun's coming up tomorrow. No, this is humanly impossible. It is a work, a product, an effect of the Holy Spirit. Christianity is not a self-help thing. It is not kind of, you know, five happy principles for living and add Jesus. No, it is radically different than anything the world can say. The world say, well, have stiff upper, upper lip. Just don't have negative thoughts. Just think positive. Put positive thoughts out there. No, and the Bible says that's all nonsense. We don't want something that's natural, that can be explained. We want something that's supernatural, that can only be explained because God is there. Remember what Paul said to the church at Corinth, when people come into our midst, they should say, wow, God is here. Not because it's been artificially produced with dancing girls and bears and trombones and things like that. It's that sense of the supernatural that we are meeting in the presence of a God who is awesome and awe-inspiring and he is able to raise the dead. He is able to do the humanly impossible. And so he says, Don, today, rejoice. And if I spare you for tomorrow, Don, rejoice. And if you make it to Wednesday, rejoice. And if you make it to next Sunday, rejoice. And if you make it to 2024, rejoice. Don, I've kept this very simple. There's only one ball you have to juggle. Rejoice. Now the question is, where do we get that joy? And our text tells us in verse 13, there's a present aspect to our joy and there's a future aspect to our joy. We're not just talking ourselves into, the, I'm going to be happy, 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 happy. And we're going to play lively tunes. We'll get Debbie up here to crank out some really lively, you know, climbing up Sunshine Mountain and all that kind of stuff. And those are, those are good songs. But that isn't what he's talking about. He says, the joy I'm talking about has nothing to do with you. 
It has everything to do with Jesus. Look what he says. In verse 13, but the word of contrast, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You see what he's saying? What is unique about the Christian, see, with all those people dying in Morocco or with this in Spain or a war in Ukraine, or most of those people are just dying. They probably don't know Jesus. But you know what's unique about the believer? That I have the great experience, the great privilege of suffering to some degree like Jesus did. And that means it's excruciating. It's undeserved. It's unfair. But it came from a loving Heavenly Father. And as I suffer in this life, I'm to suffer in such a way that I'm reminding myself that what a great privilege as I go through this world and suffer for things that I didn't bring on myself. In fact, he goes on in verse 15. He says, look, at, but let no, no one of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler or anything like that. You're to suffer as a Christian. That is, you're to suffer for being godly, for being faithful, for loving Jesus. Do you know the only crime of these believers in the book of First Peter is that they love Jesus? And they've been uprooted, they've been persecuted, they have had to flee from their homes and their jobs and everything, and all they did was love Jesus. All they did was turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation. And Peter says, when you go through a tough time, you know what produces joy? That you're able to have a sense of sharing and participating, and koinonia is the word here, having fellowship with the same kinds of sufferings that Jesus had. I remember when I was in high school, and uh, I didn't have a girlfriend but uh, the football guys and the basketball guys had girlfriends. And, and what I noticed about these girls was they were never more happy than when they were wearing their guy's sweater or his jacket. Or, and you see, the true believer is never more happy when they have the great, great, great privilege of being like Jesus. And that's suffering unfairly, undeservedly. Now, it seems like a cruel hoax on God's part, unless it's personal. I've never met Jesus personally. I've never seen him. In fact, that's what Peter says. Having never seen him, you trust him. Having never seen him, you love him. I've never seen Jesus yet, and neither have you. But to think I have the privilege in a sense of wearing his jacket, 
of suffering just a little bit because I can't come close to suffering like Jesus did. Because you see, God treated Jesus as if he was Don Theobald. And that must have been horrific. So that God can treat Don Theobald as if he's Jesus. And oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful. So you see, what produces my joy in the midst of my trials is that I can see that God is doing in my life the same things he did in Jesus' life. And how did that turn out? Well, he tells us. Not only does my present experience fuel my joy and rejoicing, but notice what it says in verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share God's sufferings, that, w- that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is not the end of the story. I have a joy that's out of this world. I have a joy and a gladness that will never diminish. It will never be interrupted. It will never in any way be tarnished for all eternity. Now, I'm 74. I don't know how long I'll live for. We'll even say 80. But you know, that's just a blip on the screen compared to eternity. And for all eternity, I will rejoice and be glad. You remember when you were engaged? You couldn't wait for your wedding day. And that caused you to make tremendous self-disciplined sacrifices, didn't it? Because you knew there was a day of great joy and happiness and gladness coming. And the believer is to remember, as I go through this valley of tears, this uh, shadow of death, I'm to remember there's a joy that's out of this world. And it's not a fairy tale. Because the Jesus who suffered for me is now in heaven. He reigns in glory. Hebrews, what does it say? For the joy that was set before him, Jesus pouted and whined and complained. No. For the joy that was set before him, he endured. He bore up under the cross. And you see, my present situation, my future prospects are to be what fuels this supernatural joy. Isn't it wonderful to think that? And I'm not playing games with myself. I'm not taking a little something to feel better and to dull the pain. I don't want to dull the pain any more than Jesus refused the narcotic to dull the pain. I I want to experience this to the full because it brings me into closer fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians? I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That same David, who's now a pastor, he had this uh, gift, I guess you would call it, when he was being disciplined in a certain area. He tightened certain muscles in that area. And, And often David's purpose in that discipline was to be able to minimize the pain. God's put an amazing nerve from the bottom to the brain. And if you get it right, it'll send a message. 
And you see, what happens for a lot of us who are Christians, we want to tighten certain muscles so that we won't feel this. And Peter says, don't do that. Don't do that. But it hurts. Yes, it hurts. But it robs you of the fellowship of suffering like Jesus and suffering for Jesus. So the command is very simple. Rejoice. You got one ball to toss in the air. You're not, you know, when I was a kid, we used to watch Ed Sullivan and he'd get those guys on there, all these poles and they got the plates and they're spinning them and they're running around trying to keep the ball spinning on the, on the poles so they won't fall and break. And God says, look, you don't have to do all that stuff. You just rejoice. Because of Jesus, you right now have fellowship with his sufferings and oh, you have a future that's a lot closer than you think when you will be in a place of joy unspeakable. And I can hardly wait. I don't think anybody in heaven tonight wishes they were here. But they're going to miss the wedding. They're going to miss the graduation. They're going to miss... Oh, they're not miss. We're the ones who are missing because it's a place of unspeakable joy. Now, very quickly, what's the comfort in our trials? And there's great comfort in our trials. We would want God to remove our trials, and sometimes he does, but not at the expense of what he's promised for us. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are people who are really sad. Blessed are people who are persecuted. Blessed are people who are poor. You know, we just think, boy, imagine the freedom of, not that I buy those things, but imagine, just think if this happened or that happened. And the fairy tales, it's always that someday your prince will come. If you kiss that frog, who knows what might happen besides getting warts and other things. But the gospel never says that. It says what you're going through right now is a blessing. Now this word blessing here isn't what you say when somebody sneezes or whatever, or this blessing isn't what you say at a meal. This blessing is the reverse of the curse of Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed. Now, he didn't say a bunch of bad words, but he spoke words that reversed the blessings that he had put in the creation. Now there's going to be thorns and thistles. Now you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. Now you're going to work like a dog, dig in the ground, and one day they'll dig the ground and put you back in it. You thought there'd be life in sin? There's only death. Now the amazing thing is that the gospel comes along and it reverses the curse, not in a Disney way, because you know, the good fairy comes and zaps, and that rat turns into a prince, or that pumpkin turns into a golden chariot, or those raggedy clothes turn into, you know. God doesn't do that. 
He could do it, but he doesn't. You know what he does? He takes the thing that once was a curse and leaves it, and now he turns it into a blessing. That's astounding, isn't it? You know he could just merely think the thought, and I would be healed. But he leaves it because he wants me to be blessed. Now, what's the blessing? He says, blessed are you if people treat you terribly because you love Jesus. That's what it's saying there. Why? Because the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of glory. The Spirit is the down payment that God makes on my salvation that guarantees future glory. Isn't that amazing? And he's the Spirit of God. He, he is God the Spirit. He is the third person of the Trinity. But notice what it says, that when you're going through excruciating, painful trials, the Spirit is resting upon you. Now, this is a very fascinating idea. If you know anything of your Old Testament, and I know with Pastor Brad you did. You learned the Bible storyline. In the Old Testament, there's this principle of rest, isn't there? Begins in Genesis 2, God rested from all that he had done when he finished his work. And then built into the Old Testament economy was a day of rest every seven days. Now don't start nodding off because we're talking about rest. Hang with me. Okay, when you went into the promised land, what were you supposed to do? You were to rest one day a week. You weren't to be out there pitching hay and all that stuff. And every seventh year, what were you to do? You were to let the land rest. You weren't to plow it. You weren't to plant it. You weren't to work it. You were to let it lie fallow. You were letting it just re, kind of recharge and reinvigorate and those kinds of things. Isn't that true? And what he is saying here is fascinating because what he's saying is that when you're going through excruciating trials, do you know what's happening to you? The Spirit of God is resting upon you so that you will be even more and more productive and fruitful. And it's the kind of productiveness and fruitfulness that only comes from trials. We could spend the rest of the week here just sharing about trials and what we learned from them and what a blessing they were. What he's saying is that God supernaturally by his spirit rests on a person who's going through great difficulties and causes them inwardly to be increasingly fruitful and productive and bearing more and more and more and more fruit. See, Satan thinks if he beats the snot out of you, you'll come out with your hands up. And God says, oh no, you can do whatever you want to my people. They just get more and more fruitful. You remember the book of Exodus? The more the Pharaoh persecuted the children of Israel, the more productive they were. 
And oh, what a wonderful thing when God works in a person who's gone through very, very difficult times. He loved being with those people. They're amazing people. There's something supernatural about them. And you look at them and you say, how does he do it year after year after year? But his joy. How does she hang in there like she does? But all her wisdom and her fruitfulness and her helpfulness and her kindness. And you think, see, those things are supernaturally produced. And they're only the product of trials, undeserved trials, unfair trials, things that should have never happened to any Christian. But God says, I'm going to let them happen because do you know why? I love them. And do you know what? The Lord wants you to, in this life, be abundantly fruitful. And he wants you to have abundant fruit in the age to come. There'll be nobody in heaven who regrets suffering for Jesus. It'll be glorious. And you know why? Because they've already had a foretaste of that glory in this life. They've already been anticipating, looking forward to. Isn't it amazing how trials wean us from this world? Things that we thought were so wonderful and important and necessary, and you realize They never deliver what they promise. But oh, a soul that is being tested and tried and their faith continues to grow. The atheist, Nietzsche, said he never saw a joyful Christian. He spent the last eight years of his life being insane. And he used to sign his letters, Jesus Christ. I shudder to think what that man is doing right now under the wrath of God. His problem was that he wasn't looking for the right kind of joy. He was looking for human joy. And it's supernatural. There is no explanation how God, who is holy and just and righteous and loving and good, takes evil things and works in his children and produces good. You have a God like that? Are you in awe of your Savior? Are you amazed? As you look around at the body of Christ, you say, this is just amazing. I can't believe it, that I serve a God like that, that he can keep a guy or a gal or a family or even a child and bring them through the worst of trials and they come out joyful and fruitful to the glory of God. We have to sing about that, don't we? Ask our brother to come up and lead us, and then we will remain standing for the benediction.